Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, November 6th, we're studying 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. St. Paul concludes his first letter to Timothy, urging the young pastor to fight the good fight of faith by guarding the sound doctrine he has been given and by confessing it boldly before all people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Tim Stork. Pastor Stork serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan. Pastor Stork, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, let's talk context. The, the whole letter comes before this text, Pastor Stork. What do we need to know about what Paul has laid out so far that helps us get into today's text? So... The context that we need to remember for today's text especially comes from what he wrote just a little bit earlier in chapter 6, where we need to know what Timothy is called to flee from. And if you remember from earlier, the two things that Paul is concerned about for Timothy is, one, the false teachers that have arisen within the church and to flee from them, from their conceit and from their um, understanding of nothing, but also that Timothy and the pastors who will follow after him are also to flee from the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil, knowing that pastors and other men and women within the church as well can be pulled into that root of all kinds of evil, um, and that they should avoid them and instead follow after the things of God. So two things that Timothy should flee, which is how this section is going to start. False teachers, their conceit, their know-nothingness, and also the love of money. That leads us into today's text, 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 21. I'll go ahead and read that for us. St. Paul writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. That is our text for today, 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 21. So, Pastor Stork, the text that we've got for today, again, says flee these things. These things would be the false teachers, the love of money that Paul's just laid out in the previous section. He says, as for you, O man of God, is, is, is he referring to Timothy as a man of God because he's a pastor? Is that a more general referring there? What's, what's he saying there? I, I think it covers both. Um, first, of course, Timothy is a pastor in the church. Um, later on, Paul will use the same language in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he says to Timothy, he says, the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And he speaks those within the context of telling Timothy then to preach the word. Um, and so first and foremost, I think here we understand this man of God as a pastor within the church. But I think it's also a more general understanding. I think Peter uses that same type of language when he writes in his first epistle, you're a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so in another direction, I think you can understand that you can look at this from the perspective of the believer, um, the one who has been baptized into Christ, that as us men of God and also women of God are also called to fight the good fight um, and to pursue the things that Paul then goes on to describe to Timothy. This is another one of those sections where certainly this is an important thing for the man who occupies the pastoral office, that he would flee from false teachers and false teaching, that he would flee from the love of money. But it also applies to other Christians as well, to every Christian. These are things from which they should flee. We've seen that throughout this epistle, where, where there are parts where certainly this is speaking to pastors, and it has a very particular application for them. But that does not mean that there is nothing there for the lay reader of, of Timothy. So flee these things, run away from these things, Timothy, but not just sort of run away, but actually run towards something, pursue. And Paul gives this long list of things that Timothy ought to be pursuing. Take us into that list. He starts with righteousness. Yeah, he, he, he takes us right into the righteousness that's given to us by God, um, that wonderful gift of being made right in our Lord's sight, the grace and the forgiveness that he gives to us there. I mean, that, that's really the heart and the center of, of what he's talking about here, um, that virtue and that integrity as well that he has given to us. Um, like you said, Pastor Apple, we are to flee from these 
this love of money and the things of this world. And of course, we have to have something to flee to. And so Paul gives us that, flee to that righteousness given us by God. Um, going on to, to godliness, um, to the rever reverence and respect towards God. That's that good piety. You know, some of us, we when we talk about piety, we, we talk about a, a bad sense of piety, but this is this is good piety. This is praying to God. This is hearing his word. This is spending time in that word, receiving his gifts. And then right there in the middle of it is faith, that we would trust God, that we would trust his word, that we would hear it. Um, and then going on from there, to, to love our brother. The word that Paul uses to Timothy to describe that love is agape which is that brotherly love, that we would show love to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and also to our neighbors, to, to the unbeliever as well. And then endurance or steadfastness, I think is as the ESV has it, that we would endure um, as we fight the good fight, as we hold the faith that God has given to us. We need that endurance. We need the ability to, to move forward and, and to hold on. And then finally, as Christians, that we would do all things with gentleness, that we would be meek, that we would show, again, that love, that compassion to our neighbor as well. Yeah, and that, that word standing at the end of this list provides a, a bit of a contrast, or maybe contrast is the right word, but we understand what that gentleness is and isn't. The, the gentleness to which Paul calls Timothy isn't a wimpiness or, or some yeah. sort of, uh, well, you know, like just a pushover, something like that. Because the very next thing that he says is fight. <laughs> this he's, he's going now from the, the running language to battle language which we've we've seen elsewhere in Paul and and in this this epistle as well this this image of of a a warfare that's happening and Paul says to Timothy as you're pursuing these things what are you doing you're actually fighting fight the good fight of the faith very very well known words i think oh yeah definitely you know several of the hymns in our in our Lutheran service book are are based off of that very text um you know, this is one of those texts, too, whenever I have an opportunity to teach it in Bible class, I love being able to teach it to the men of the congregation, because this is very, you know, manly language in a way. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Um, that, as being Christians, we're not just these wimpy, limp people who give in to the things of this world but that we have to fight against the devil. That, as St. Paul tells us in Ephesians, the Lord is the one who gives us the armor to withstand the attacks of the devil, and in fact gives us the very sword of the Spirit, which is his word, to be able to fight against the devil. Right, and, and that is where the fight starts. Is It is the fight against the, the devil. This is a, a spiritual battle that's going on. And, and having not long ago celebrated the Reformation. It is, it's such a wonderful thing to, to consider that that Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress, and how you get that same battle language there. 
that in this fight, we're not alone. You know, the, the language Luther gives us, he, Jesus, the, the elect one of God, he's the one who holds the field forever. It, we're not fighting in this by ourselves. Jesus is the one who has, has fought and won. He gives us the victory. And, and there is the strength for Christians, for all Christians, pastors particularly, but all Christians, to fight this good fight of, of the faith. It's not just any sort of fight, but it is the fight of the faith. How is that significant? Yes. Uh, you know, that, that faith, it tells us exactly what it is, what we are fighting for. That this faith consists in, as Luther teaches us in the first commandment, the fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Um, that Christ came into the world, as St. Paul tells us earlier in First Timothy, to save sinners. And that is the thing, that is the very gift that God has given to us, that the devil, the world, and our flesh wants to take away from us. Um, the devil doesn't want us to have any type of comfort in the cross of Christ. The, the world wants us to doubt everything that Jesus has done for us, and our flesh so often wants us to believe that, why would Jesus ever die for you? You know what kind of sins you have committed. And so this faith that we've been given by the Holy Spirit is the very thing that we fight for, um, that we would be able to knock back the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh and say, no, we are Christ. He has won the battle for us. He has not only won the battle, but he's also won the war. And because of that, because of what Jesus has done for us, you can't have us. Um, we are reminded that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, but one way that I used to describe it to my confirmations students is the fact that the devil has a loud voice, but Jesus has knocked his teeth out. He has no bite. He can't destroy the church. He can't destroy um, Jesus himself because Jesus has already destroyed him for us. And so we already know when we fight against the devil what his end is going to be. Right. And, and that gives us strength as we fight this good fight of faith. And it's it's not just a fight for its for the sake of fighting, but there is a a prize at the end. Again, trying to to connect the images here, and Paul, you've got the idea of of running towards something, pursuing something, fighting this good fight of the faith along the way to take hold, take hold of the eternal. There's a, a prize, there's a goal at the end that's waiting. And, and looking forward, I'm thinking Hebrews 12 language here, you know, keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus, my, the author and perfecter of my faith, with my eyes fixed forward, uh, with that goal in mind of the eternal life to which, to which you were called, Timothy, that's, that's the goal. I, I'm going, again, I'm, I'm not just running away from something, but I'm running towards something, and it is this wonderful yeah. gift of eternal life. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Um... You know, we're like you said, Pastor. We're not just fighting for the sake of fighting. We are we are fighting against the devil as we run towards the gift that we've already been given. the The wonderful thing, 
you know, as we head towards that finish line, um, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, we already know what the end is. I mean, that's the, that's the awesome thing. We've already been given the gift of everlasting life. We've already been given um, the promise of the resurrection of the dead. And we cling to that, and we cling to it knowing what's at the finish line, um, knowing that it's there waiting for us, knowing that the, the devil can't have us um, because we belong to Jesus, first and foremost. Mm. And we continue to, to press forward and knowing that Jesus has run the race for us as well, that he has already, like I said, knocked the devil in his teeth and has shown us by his resurrection from the dead that these good things are already ours. What's wonderful about this particular expression, I think, is that this is a very personal thing for Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This this is not only something that you are to preach, Timothy, but this is something that you were given, something that you believe, this eternal life that, that you preach, the resurrection of the dead that is there in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just for your hearers, Timothy, it's for you too. What a joy that is for pastors to know again that the, it's not just I guess it's not just fighting for fighting's sake, but it, but it is the journey of, of every Christian, and and the pastor is on that journey as well. He's running that race as well for the goal of his own salvation. I mean that's that's the gift that belongs to Timothy and to every pastor and to every Christian. So it's very at least reading it as a pastor, I find that very comforting. Yes, definitely. I try to remind myself that, and, and my hearers, the, the congregations that I've had the opportunity to serve and, and the saints here at Good Shepherd, that their pastor struggles with many of the same similar struggles that they do, that we take hold of this very same thing that we were called to in holy baptism. Um, that yes, as pastors, the, the devil works against us in very particular ways. But in the same time, we are, we're tempted very often the same ways our members are tempted. We are facing many of the same struggles that they are facing. But the wonderful promise, as Timothy is going to go preach to his own congregation, it's not just for them, but Timothy can take heart in that promise is also for him as well, mm. as a baptized child of God, that these things that Jesus has won for him also belong to him um, through the gift of faith that he was given him. And, you know, this opportunity to confess that again um, as, you know, Timothy became a pastor and the opportunity to confess that on a, on a daily basis as he ministered to his own people and to the people of the world during that time. You mentioned the confession that Timothy made and makes. Paul goes there as well, again, to, to the whole sentence, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This good confession that Timothy made— 
What's that referring to, Pastor Stork? Well, as I was looking at the text, I think there might be a couple of things that come up here. One may very well be Timothy's baptism, um, most likely being baptized older and having gone through instruction beforehand. There is a very good chance that Timothy confessed his faith before he was baptized. Also, there's a good chance that Timothy confessed this very same faith when he became a pastor, um, just like pastors do when they are ordained and installed. The very first thing that they do is make a confession of faith before the congregation and the gathered ministers that are there, um, promising to keep the Word of God promising to teach that Word of God in all of its fullness, both law and gospel, and, and promising to um, hold to the confessions that we believe and to care for the congregation that has been entrusted into their care. I, I like the way that you tied that confession to his baptism, which, again, he probably would have been baptized as an adult. We, we know that his his mother and grandmother, who we're going to read more about in 2 Timothy after this, that, that they gave this faith to Timothy. They taught him from the scriptures from a very early age, but likely he would have been baptized as an adult. And, and so that, yeah, I, I like tying it to baptism here in this verse, again, because of that very personal nature that, that Paul's giving it here in, in this verse. Now, he does and not to not to the absence of his ordination by any means. I, I think that's certainly in, in view here as well, particularly as Paul goes on in verse 13. He says, I charge you, which we've, we've seen Paul do this previously. Back in chapter 5, he charged Timothy as well. And, and similarly, he puts Timothy in God's presence, and he, he gives quite a bit of, of elaboration on that here. So verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things. Well, let's just start there. Paul puts Timothy in the presence of God, who gives life to all things. Yes. It's, we are reminded that this charge that Paul gives to Timothy is not just a charge that is spoken to or in, done in the presence of just any person, but this charge comes in the very presence of God. Um, that who gives life to all things. Um, the fact is, God is the one who gives us everything. He gave life to all things back in Genesis chapter 1. He gives life to the animals. He gives, breathes life into Adam. Um, he gives life to Eve. And in fact, he is the one who gives us life as well. Every breath that we take, every beat of our heart, all the things that we do in our lives ultimately are a gift from God. And ultimately, it is this God that Paul gives this charge to Timothy in the presence of, um, knowing that this is the one true God. This is not just some God or some idol made up by the world or by our sinful minds, but this is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Now, Paul also then puts Timothy not only in the presence of God who gives life to all things, but also in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Again, why why is Paul putting Timothy in the presence of Christ Jesus, and why does he emphasize particularly the testimony that Jesus gave making the good confession before Pontius Pilate? Yeah, so putting Timothy also in the presence of, of Christ ties us back into the presence of the Father as well, yeah. that in Christ, Timothy is able to make this good confession, just as Christ himself makes the perfect confession when he stood that day or that evening or that morning um, with uh, with Pontius Pilate, where he confesses that he is the Son of God, that Pilate has no authority other than the authority that is given to him by the Father, by God himself. And it is that perfect confession that Christ makes that stands in the stead um, for all of us as Christians who at times waver in our own faith, that Jesus makes the good confession on our behalf, and so that we are also able to confess that faith as well, that Jesus is our Savior. As, as Paul gives this charge to Timothy here, again, in the presence of God who gives life, and of Christ Jesus, who's made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. The, the way that he does that, it, it strikes me as a very gospel-oriented way of, of making this charge. What, what I mean is that it, when whenever you give someone a charge, there's certainly the matter of the law. You need to do yeah. this, Timothy. But the way that Paul frames it is a very gospel-centered way of framing it, that why do you need to do this? Because God has done for you. He's given you life, Timothy. He's created you, all those first article gifts that we talk about. And he's the one who saved you. Christ Jesus is the one who came and made the good confession before Pontius Pilate, such that he went into death for your sins and was raised for your justification. That this this charge that he gives to Timothy is just grounded in the good news of who God is and what he's done for us sinners. Yes, definitely. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're going to take a short break, come right back to that charge that Paul gives to Timothy. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, November 6th. We're looking at 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 21. We've got Pastor Tim Stork with us. He serves at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan. Pastor Stork, prior to the break, we were 
talking about this charge that Paul gives to Timothy. He puts Timothy in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, in the presence of Jesus, who is the one who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Then we actually get to the charge, which is in verse 14. The charge that is given to Timothy is to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this charge, this keeping the commandment unstained and free? Yeah, that, that charge, I would say, is the, the preaching of the gospel. Mm. Um, and that he would continue to go about fighting the good fight, distributing God's gifts, giving the things that God has first given to his church, and going out and, and sharing that word with, with others, um, and, and keeping that gospel unstained and free from the reproach of the world, um, keeping it free from censure and being blameless and, and unrebukable. And that we're called to do that until our Lord appears, um, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we don't know when that day is going to be, but we're called to, to keep up the, this charge until that day comes. Yeah, keep keep doing it. Keep doing it. until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ means you you just don't stop until until yeah. he comes. Or or I mean in in Timothy's case and and in the case of faithful pastors up to our day until they until they die, whichever comes first, keep doing this. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep holding on to the sound doctrine, the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep doing this, Timothy. Keep at it. Fight that good fight. Pursue these things. Keep at it until, until the Lord returns, which is why faithful pastors still do this today. Now, now again, and then which he will display at the proper time. So I just want to make sure I've got my, my grammar here straight, which he will display at the proper time, because then Paul's going to launch into this doxology. This is, this is saying the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God the Father is going to bring about at the proper time. Is that is that how that that reads? Yes. Okay. Um, that God is going to display at the, at just the right time. Yes. Um, it reminds me of how earlier in one of Paul's other epistles, he reminds us that Christ coming into the world happened at just the proper time, at just the right time in history. Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. And the same thing is, is true here, that God the Father will display this at just the right time. For those of us who, you know, wonder and question, why now? Why do things occur, you know, at this point in history? Or why did God send Jesus at that time? It's because he knew that it was the perfect time. And the same thing holds true here in verse 15, that God will display this at just the right time. And that, again, for us as Christians, should bring us great comfort that God knows these things and that his will and his work is done just at the right time, that God doesn't just do things willy-nilly and sits back and says, you know, maybe I'll do something right now. 
But no, he knows exactly when something needs to occur and, and why it should occur, which, like I said, should bring us great comfort as Christians. And it very it very much should bring us great comfort, and particularly the matter here, that that God will give Christ's return at just the proper time should bring great comfort to us as Christians, and it also should lend us, I think, great courage as pastors and as as the whole Church of God in doing what Paul is is giving to Timothy and making the good confession and proclaiming the gospel, because we know that this this proper time for which the Father has set for Christ's return, well, why did he set it then? I'm, I'm reminded of what Peter says in his second epistle, that you know, God's not slow like you think slowness is. He's, he's going to send Jesus at the right time because he's, he's desiring that more would come to repentance, which is, a, I mean, it's just yeah. a, a very comforting, I think it's both those things. It's, it's comforting and it, it's an encouraging word, filling us with courage and joy to go out and make this good confession because we know what God's going to do with it. He's going to bring more to repentance and faith. Yes. Yeah, that, that brings great comfort, as, especially as a pastor, knowing that over, you know, however long it's going to be until our Lord comes back. In fact, he could come back while we're having this conversation this right. morning. And the fact that Jesus is going to come back at the proper time and knowing that he is going to bring more into the kingdom before that, that time of his appearing. Um, and knowing that God's word doesn't return empty, that he will use all of that time to, to save more and to, to join them to his kingdom. Now, with, with that in view, then, it, it, I think it makes sense, then, that Paul just launches into this doxology. It doesn't really come out of nowhere, which it might seem at first, but it, it makes full sense. With all of that in view, Paul launches into this doxology. It was just beautiful. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Start start taking us into this doxology, Pastor Stork. Yeah, so he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Paul, I think, here reminds us that there is first and foremost, only one true God, that there are so many false gods in this world, um, gods that we create out of our own hearts, gods that the world has created for us to, to worship, but ultimately the gods of the nations are, are many, but they're all idols. They, they can't save us, and that there is only one true God who made the heavens and the earth, and that all things, this is that, the fact that he is the, the only sovereign, he is the king of kings, that all things belong to him. All things are under his power. All happiness, all blessedness come from him. They're, they're personified in him. They are found in his presence. 
and that he is also the Lord of Lords. There, there is no one greater than him. Um, the, the reign of the Lord extends over all earthly rulers, which, especially in, in this time, should give us great comfort, um, that there is no ruler on earth who is greater, who is greater than our Lord. Um, and especially in the times that Paul was writing First Timothy and then Second Timothy should bring, would have brought Timothy great comfort as well, knowing that ultimately he was serving the, the true king. Um, the one who who does reign over all earthly rulers, um, who alone has immortality. Now that that is the thing in in this doxology that honestly blew my mind as I as I was reading this text um, over the last few weeks. Who alone has immortality? Th- this is the one true God who cannot die, and he does not know death. God alone is immortal. In God there is no such thing as death, and and by the gospel, we also don't die. But this is where the struggle comes in for us, because we also have a God who took on our flesh, who became man, yet without sin, who, in taking on our mortal nature, died on the cross when he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he would destroy death himself, who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who have lived their lives in slavery by their fear of death. Um this is the very God that we give all thanks and, and honor in eternal dominion. And then he goes on to say that this God also dwells in unapproachable light. Um, as the psalmist writes, God wraps himself in light as with a garment. Um, John reminds us in his first epistle that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then also John reminds us in his revelation that when he sees the, at the very end, there is no need for sun or moon. There's no need for having lamps or you know light bulbs, because the Lamb is the lamp. He is the light of the world. The other thing that it reminded me of, Pastor Apple, was the transfiguration. When Jesus shines in all of his glory, that the disciples end up falling on their faces, and Jesus shines in all of his glory. Um, And that, just like Moses, um, couldn't have approached God because of the, the light that shone forth from him. Um, because of our sinfulness, doesn't allow us to approach him. And, and this God, the, the one who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Hmm. Yes, yes, it shall be so. 
this this doxology really i mean it really illuminates just how glorious the news is that Paul gives earlier in this epistle and the two the two passages that come to mind are that very first trustworthy saying back in 115 which i think you mentioned earlier that Christ Jesus mm-hmm. came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the foremost Christ Jesus came into the world when when we talked about that several episodes ago the the guest pastor Sean Kilgo emphasized that though. Look, Christ Jesus came into the world. He didn't have to, but he did. And and who is this Christ Jesus? I mean, he is he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the one who came into this world to save sinners. And and then the other passage that comes to mind is in 1 Timothy 2, where where you say where where Paul says that there is there's one there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That that in this man Christ Jesus, this God who dwells in unapproachable light, he he comes to shine his light among us. And this God whom no one could ever see gets to be seen in, in the man Christ Jesus. I mean, it's just it it blows your mind how how wonderful yeah. it actually is. I mean, you, you put those texts together and you're just left in in complete awe and wonder and and joy and thanksgiving at who this God is and what he's done. I mean, to go back to that first first trustworthy saying, to save sinners, even the worst of them, that's me. It's just, it's just fantastic. Oh, yeah, uh, totally. Um, you know, you, you think about that, that fact that Christ takes on our human flesh and that as he was, you know, growing up and, and living and, you know, carrying out his ministry with, with the disciples and dying on the cross and, and at his resurrection from the dead, that they beheld God himself in, in human flesh and how marvelous that was. You know, the fact that they didn't see him in all of his glory, that he hid that glory um, because of how overwhelming it would have been for them. Um, the fact that they were sinners and, you know, being in God's presence, if, if we had been there with, you know, God showing, you know, who he is in his fullness, none of us could have stood before him. And yet the fact that Jesus takes on our flesh and allows man to rub shoulders with him, has man, you know, eat with him, um, you know, we see Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. I mean, again, here it is, the, the creator of all things, um, the, the very word that the Father spoke in Genesis chapter 1 comes down and becomes a servant. I mean, it, it, it just blows my mind, it, even thinking about that, that he loves us so much that he would just... He, did the most menial jobs, but even more so, he would give everything up to die on the cross for us. Right, the, and the the for us, right? the for, and, and not just, I mean, for sinners, for the worst of sinners, that's that's who he did it for. It's just, it's the the joy of the gospel comes through loud and clear in this in this entire epistle, and he, he really, I mean, he, it, it sums it up here in this doxology, 
and and again, it's almost it's almost like and you you can tell me what you think of of Paul's flow. Like, well, why didn't you stop there, Paul? <laughs> it it's almost like he got so excited about what he was talking about, he just couldn't help himself, and, and he breaks out into this praise, and then he remembers, I wasn't quite done, Timothy. There's still a couple more topics I need to bring back up, and and so he, he yeah, he, it, go ahead. It it reminds me of um, Doctor Luther. You know, there are several places in the large catechism where he's writing, and then he comes to what you feel is a natural break. And then he goes on, you know, he continues on, and it's like, well, I just have a few more things to say. And you can definitely see, I would say, Paul's pastoral heart here, Mm. because he reminds me a lot of myself in the fact that as a pastor, you get so excited about the things that we are able to share with our members and and with other people when we get to preach the gospel and we, and we get to share the good news of Jesus Christ with sinners. And then you conclude and then you realize, wait, I'm not done. I still have other things I have to say. Yeah. And, and so, and Paul, it seems that that that's what happens to Paul. In effect, he he ends up, I think, coming back to the two topics that he addressed before this charge to Timothy. Because in these these final verses, he's going to bring back up the matter of those who are rich, and and those and how then they should use that gift of God. And he's also going to come back to the matter of of true and and false doctrine. So he takes them in that order here, verses seventeen through nineteen. Paul starts talking about how those who are rich in this life should live as Christians. What does Paul have to say in these verses, Pastor Stork? Yeah, so when Paul is writing to Timothy at this point, he's not giving, I don't believe, a legal prescription as a way of salvation. So he is not saying that as a rich person who is a Christian, that to be saved— they have to act this way, but that he is giving Timothy a guide to teach them how to live. Um, as, a, as a Christian who has been blessed with great wealth, this is what you need to do, or this is how you should, um, how you should act and, and what you should do with the wonderful gifts that God has, that God has given to you. And I think that's the first thing that, Timothy, when he would counsel those within his congregation um, for the rich who um, are also believers in Christ, that they first and foremost should remember that all of the riches that they have received are ultimately a gift from God. They are not their own. Um, That they are a trust that has been given to to them. The, The first thing that he reminds them is, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, Um, to remind them first and foremost that riches can oftentimes lead people to pride, Um, that we need to guard ourselves against the spirit of the world, uh, against seeing ourselves as so much greater than anyone else because we have all of this money. Um, the other thing that I think Timothy is being counseled on in regards to talking to his members is the fact that the church also has to be careful 
not to foster pride by showing partiality to others. Um, we heard that earlier in First Timothy chapter 5, where Paul says to Timothy, he says, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. How easy it is in the church to be swayed by those who maybe you believe have more influence. Um, or for a church or a congregation that is concerned about whether it's closing or being able to keep programs going, that maybe we need to be a little bit kinder to certain members because we're afraid of losing the money that they contribute to the congregation. But ultimately, that we are to set our hopes not on the things of this world, not on the things that can rust or fall apart or disappear in the blink of an eye, but that we set our hope on God. Um, that ultimately, he is the one who gives us all things. He is the one who will see us through. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, in two different places. He reminds us what, what as Christians we are called to do or not to do in the case. For example, in Matthew 6, 24, he reminds us that no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and mammon. And then later on, just a few verses later in Matthew 6, 33, he reminds us that we are to seek first the kingdom of God. And all of this should be added to you. And that's after Jesus reminds us and reminded the disciples that why should we worry? If God is going to take care of the birds of the air, if he's going to take care of the flowers of the field, how much more are you worth? He's going to take care of you. So the first thing that we are called to do instead of worrying about the things of this world is seek first the kingdom of God. Hope in him. Know that no matter what, God is the one who is going to take care of you. Right, the certainty is found in God. The the gifts of God, the riches. I mean, that's we're not we're not saying that those riches in and of themselves are bad, but when we put our hope on them, we're putting hope in something that is uncertain. What is certain is the God who gives them, the God who gives all good things. And that passage from Matthew six is a perfect example of that. Pastor Stark, we've got got about four minutes left on the morning. And so Paul continues that the antidote to this is to be generous, to be rich in good works instead of rich in money. And and he concludes the, the epistle. I really want to move to verses 20 and 21 to make sure we, we get all of this. He, he moves back then to the good deposit that's been entrusted to Timothy to hold on to that, to, to stay away from the false doctrine, hold on to the truth. Give us that, that those concluding verses in 20 and 21. Yeah, so he then goes on to, to conclude, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. You know, again, not just as a pastor that he has been given this, this deposit, the gospel, to guard and, and, and to, to hold to, um, 
that must be preserved, that, that must be passed on, um, that, he is, that he is to hold on to it. And, and the same thing could be said for, for all believers, that we are to, to guard that deposit that has been entrusted to us in, in baptism, um, that, that we do preserve it, but knowing that we don't do this on our own, that it is a work of the Holy Spirit. You know, if this, this good deposit, if, if the gospel was dependent upon us to be kept holy and pure and unstained and, and without any type of blemish, that would have failed years ago. But the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who truly is the one who guards that good deposit, especially within ourselves, um, he is the one who continues to, um, to work in us and, and to keep it unstained and undefiled. And then he warns Timothy. He says, avoid the irreverent babble. Um, and, and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. You know, that irreverent babble, the, this false teaching that has arisen, is like empty noise, or, or maybe like the, the clanging cymbals or the clanging gongs. Um, it, it really, it's empty chatter. Um, it, it's these words that really don't fit with the scriptures. Um, and the contradictions, the very things that are actually opposed to the gospel. But then they still call it knowledge, um, these false teachers do. But this false knowledge is this higher knowledge that they believe and these divine things that the, the false teachers boast of, that they are these greater Christians than anybody else because they have this, this other knowledge of God. And yet, Timothy and the believers have everything that they need in the scriptures. And, and that it's there um, that Timothy is to cling, and, and all pastors and all Christians, and that we swerve, um, or not swerve, but that we um, avoid, that we should stay away from those who teach um, falsely within the church. Yeah, and, and to avoid those things, because we've got what's good. We've got the sound, healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what gives life. Pastor Tim Stork is the pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Chesterfield Township, Michigan, helping us this morning with 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. Pastor Stork, thanks for being our guest today. Well, thank you, Pastor Apple. I definitely enjoyed having this wonderful conversation with you. The healthy words, the sound doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is what gives life, life from God, the one who has all life. There is no death in him. He is the giver of life, and he gives it to you and to me in his son, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you and for me. That's the healthy doctrine that pastors and churches need above all else. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us looking at 1 Timothy. We're going to talk about 2 Timothy starting next week. Talk to you then. <laughs>